Picture this, if you will. A 31-year-old male presents to the emergency department and complains of feeling feverish and unwell for the past week. You attempt to ask about more specific symptoms, but it's made difficult by the patient's rambling, tangential train of thought. Vitals are notable for a temperature of 38.4 degrees Celsius, heart rate of 121 beats per minute, and oxygen saturation of 88% on room air. On physical exam, the patient appears twitchy, with pressured speech and dilated pupils. He's breathing rapidly, and upon auscultation, you hear several scattered sounds of crackles. His peripheral pulses are strong and bilaterally symmetric, though you can't help but also notice puncture scars along the lines of his peripheral veins as you're palpating his wrists. Hey, watch where you're pressing, he exclaims. That hurt. You apologize, thinking that your distraction led you to press harder than intended. And then you notice the angry-looking red lump on his right palm that you accidentally pushed against. What diagnosis do you suspect? And what tests do you need to confirm your suspicions? And welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics in cardiology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this episode, you'll be able to 1. Define infective endocarditis and state the three main classifications based on the natural history of the disease. 2. Describe the typical presenting symptoms of a patient with bacterial endocarditis. 3. Discuss the pathophysiology, the most common valves affected, and the typical sources of infection in infective endocarditis. 4. Explain how to diagnose infective endocarditis. And 5. Outline the prevention and treatment of infective endocarditis. Part 1. What is infective endocarditis? Infective endocarditis is an infection of the inner layer of the heart, the endocardium, as the name endo suggests, or in other words, the layer of the heart directly in contact with circulating blood. So for the endocardium to get infected, it requires both bacteremia to bring pathogens in contact with the endocardium and endocardial injury that allows the pathogens to invade. Endocardial infection manifests as friable vegetations coming off the endocardium that can thrombose, embolize, and continue to seed infection that leads to persistent bacteremia. But functionally, one of the most important aspects of infective endocarditis is its effect on the valves. Not only are the valves of the heart particularly prone to endocardial injury, but vegetations and weakened soft tissue on the valves can directly impair their function. Infective endocarditis can be classified as native valve versus prosthetic valve endocarditis, which is when installed valves are infected after the native valves have been surgically replaced. Native valve endocarditis generally follows one of two distinct natural histories. If symptom onset is rapid, the condition is classified as acute infective endocarditis. But symptom onset is frequently gradual, presenting only with nonspecific symptoms of systemic infection or inflammation, and this condition is considered subacute infective endocarditis. Part 2. How do patients with infective endocarditis present? If you're wondering what the most common symptom of infective endocarditis is, well, it's nothing more dramatic than fever, which occurs in about 90% of patients. Not very specific, huh? Unfortunately, a lot of the more dramatic symptoms occur in a minority of patients, so you can't depend on them for your diagnosis. Symptoms may include symptoms of sepsis, like lethargy and confusion. If valve failure is severe enough, 
patients may have symptoms of heart failure, like easy fatigability, dyspnea, or peripheral edema. Finally, patients may have symptoms of cardiogenic emboli, like vision loss and joint and back pain. But unfortunately, patients most commonly present with little more than fever, meaning infective endocarditis is often detected on an evaluation of fever of unknown origin. The one physical exam finding that is actually reasonably sensitive and specific for infective endocarditis is the presence of a new murmur. Now, this actually occurs in about 85% of patients, but keep in mind that identifying this finding depends on both, one, your skill with a stethoscope, and two, having a reliable reference point for what the patient's heart sounded like before their acute illness. All right, pop quiz time, guys. What is the most common symptom of infective endocarditis? And the answer is fever. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of infective endocarditis? Like I mentioned already, infective endocarditis occurs when blood-borne bacteria, or in rare cases other pathogens, colonizes a thrombus on the valve that is formed due to injury. Bacteria can colonize native valves that are normal, as well as those that are damaged. And they can also damage prosthetic valves that replace the damaged native valves. Generally, the greater the valve damage, the greater the chance of contracting infective endocarditis. So let's dive a little deeper into the etiology of acute, subacute, and prosthetic valve endocarditis. In acute infective endocarditis, highly virulent bacteria like Staphylococcus aureus can colonize thrombi on the native valve itself. Virulent bacteria form large vegetations and can rapidly lead to valve destruction. Symptoms of acute endocarditis present rapidly, and the mortality rate is about 50%, even despite treatment. If the mitral or aortic valve become incompetent, acute heart failure and pulmonary edema can develop as a result of valvular regurgitation. Subacute infective endocarditis occurs when less virulent bacteria are involved, like the group of oral flora known as the viridin streptococcal species, strep mutans and sanguinis specifically. Now, these tend to cause smaller vegetations, and mostly on already damaged or genetically abnormal valves, like bicuspid aortic valves, so symptoms tend to present more insidiously. Unlike acute infective endocarditis, most patients do recover with treatment. Prosthetic valve endocarditis occurs specifically in the populations of patients with implanted cardiac hardware. This includes pacemaker and defibrillator wires, but most commonly artificial valves. Because the slick texture of a prosthetic valve provides a good surface for biofilms or aggregates of bacteria to adhere to, and are relatively sheltered from the immune system. With time, the high-flow jets produced by the mechanical valve can damage the endocardium, while the adjacent low-pressure eddies promote thrombus formation. Staphylococci, which are skin flora, most commonly colonize within 60 days of surgery. Staph epidermidis is the most common, followed by the second most common, Staph aureus. In contrast, streptococci most commonly colonize more than 60 days after surgery, likely as a result of spread from the oral mucosa to the bloodstream. Alright, let's do a quick review of that. Why are patients with prosthetic valves predisposed to endocarditis? Because a prosthetic valve provides a slick surface that is relatively sheltered from the immune system, allowing the formation of bacterial aggregates with a sticky extracellular matrix, or a biofilm. Now, while staph and strep species are most commonly known for causing infective endocarditis, it's worth knowing that certain patient populations develop endocarditis with specific pathogens. 
Because endocarditis can be difficult to diagnose, understanding which patients tend to be at risk is a crucial factor in establishing clinical suspicion, especially in patients who may have nonspecific symptoms. Patients with poor dentition or dental infections, basically who have a high bacterial load in their mouth, are at risk of seeding oral bacteria into the bloodstream during procedures that can cause significant bleeding of the gums or the dental socket, like dental extractions, for example. Now, these most commonly include the viridens group streptococci, and the good news is that these bacteria are not particularly virulent, so the endocarditis will have a subacute onset. In fact, it's actually not that uncommon to develop transient bacteremia during procedures that make your gums bleed, something that I think about every time flossing makes my gums bleed. Am I the only one? Maybe I need to floss more. But anyway, in most people, the immune system quickly takes care of the bacteria. They tend to have a hard time getting into the endocardium on their own. But in patients with underlying valvular disease, like rheumatic heart disease, these bacteria find the opportunity they need in the form of a damaged endocardium and can therefore lead to subacute endocarditis. Patients who inject street drugs, on the other hand, are especially susceptible to staph aureus endocarditis due to direct inoculation of skin flora into the bloodstream. Because if you're using street drugs, chances are you're not paying a lot of attention to proper disinfection to the skin before you inject. Pseudomonas aeruginosa is also common in these patients, not from the skin, but from contaminated water sources, like the syringes and spoons used to prepare and inject the drug. And these bacteria, unlike the viridans streptococci, are very virulent, leading to a much more acute illness and more structural damage to the valves. Now, these bacteria often lodge in the first valve that they encounter, the tricuspid valve, making right-sided endocarditis much more common in these patients. Finally, patients with colon cancer often have non-healing ulceration in the lumen of the colon, which allows gut bacteria to enter the bloodstream. The gut bacterium Strep gallolyticus, which you may know by its old name Strep bovis, can be implicated in bacterial endocarditis. It's not very common, nor is it a particularly virulent bacterium, but it's very weird to get Strep gallolyticus endocarditis for any reason other than colon cancer. Therefore, the most important reason to care about this somewhat arcane association is that if you make the diagnosis of Strep gallolyticus endocarditis, you should definitely consider also working the patient up for occult colon cancer. There are a few pathogens you should also learn about, specifically because endocarditis with these pathogens can be difficult to diagnose. The first cluster are the HASEC bacteria, an acronym that stands for Haemophilus, Aggregatobacter, Cardiobacterium, Echinella, and Kingella. Like the Viridens group Streptococci, these are part of the normal oral flora and tend to enter the bloodstream during dental procedures that involve manipulation of the gums and dental socket. These are responsible for about 5-10% to of cases of infective endocarditis in both native and prosthetic valves. Of these organisms, Echinella corrodens is most often associated with IV drug use, while Kingella is known for causing rapidly progressive acute endocarditis. But other than being oral flora, the thing that all HASEC bacteria have in common is that they're fastidious gram-negative coxobacilli. In English, that means they grow slowly in a culture. In fact, the cultures are often still negative after three days, making the diagnosis of HASEC bacteremia difficult from a laboratory perspective. Fungi can also cause serious infections, especially in patients who are immunocompromised, use injectable drugs, or are postoperative. It's uncommon, but when fungal endocarditis does occur, Candida and Aspergillus species are the most commonly implicated. 
Candida can form biofilms on both the native and prosthetic heart valves, which makes treatment an absolute nightmare. So that covers the microbiology. Let's review real quick. What organisms most commonly cause infective endocarditis in patients who use IV drugs? The most common is the skin bacterium Staph aureus, which is bad news bears because it's highly virulent and causes the much more dangerous acute infective endocarditis. Others include Pseudomonas aeruginosa and the Hasek bacterium Eichenella carotens. The next important pathophysiologic consideration is the site of infection, specifically which valve or valves are affected. Now, all four heart valves can be involved in infective endocarditis, but all things being equal, the higher the pressure on the valve, the more susceptible it is to infection. And the reason for this is twofold. First, high pressure causes faster and more turbulent flow, which has the potential to cause endocardial wear and tear. This can cause progressive damage to the valve, resulting in progressively more turbulent flow. Second, turbulent flow involves high-pressure jet streams that create adjacent low-flow eddies, basically places where the blood just sort of swirls around instead of moving anywhere. And these are the perfect focus for clot formation along the valves. With the introduction of bacteria, these valves become easily infected. In most patients, the mitral valve is most commonly affected. Thrombi that form over the damaged valve leaflets are colonized by bacteria, which causes an inflammatory response that exacerbates the endocardial damage and perpetuates thrombus formation and growth. The vegetations can cause mechanical disruption of the valve seal, and the inflammatory cascade causes destruction of the connective tissue of the valve. Ultimately, this can lead to mitral regurgitation and bits of the vegetations break off the valve to cause small infarcts in the distal circulation that can seed infection throughout the systemic circulation. But despite the mechanistic reasons for the mitral valve to be affected, the tricuspid valve is the most frequently involved valve when infective endocarditis is associated with IV drug use. And the reason is that these cases of infective endocarditis often involve highly pathogenic bacteria that can colonize the very first valve they come in contact with after returning through the venous circulation, namely the tricuspid. This leads to tricuspid regurgitation, which can cause a bounding jugular venous pulse during systole as the right ventricular contraction is transmitted into the right atrium and jugular veins. And in contrast to left-sided endocarditis, which causes systemic embolization, Infected thrombi will embolize into the pulmonary circulation. Alright, that covers the valves. Quick review before the final part of this section. Why are people who use injectable drugs more prone to infective endocarditis of the tricuspid valve? Because bacteria from the skin is directly introduced into the vein and attaches to the first valve that it encounters in the heart. Alright, and as for complications, the two main complications of infective endocarditis, like I've alluded to, are septic emboli and heart failure, which, especially in acute presentations, can be evident on the initial presentation. Like I mentioned, emboli from the left heart travel to the systemic circulation, and emboli from the right heart tend to embolize to the pulmonary circulation. Now, septic pulmonary emboli from the right heart aren't like the PEs you get from venous thromboembolism. For one, they're usually much smaller, so you don't tend to see patients develop right heart failure or go into obstructive shock as a result of the septic emboli. What they can do, however, is directly seed small regions of the lung with high bacterial loads, leading to multifocal pneumonia and even small abscesses. 
On radiographic imaging, you'll see what appears as multiple small, dense pulmonary nodules or opacities. Often, as the foci of infection develop, they'll develop cavitation or pockets of air like small abscesses. It should be visible on chest x-ray, but the details that reveal a pulmonary infection as highly characteristic of septic emboli are best seen on non-contrast high-resolution CT of the chest. Embolization into the systemic circulation produces a much wider range of symptoms. This can be similar to how other small systemic emboli present, with the added caveat that infection is also involved. Septic emboli to the brain and eyes can cause focal neurologic deficits like stroke, but also generalized confusion, headache, and sepsis characteristic of serious infections of the central nervous system, like encephalitis and meningitis. Embolization to the extremities often causes the cutaneous findings that make up some of the most classic features of infective endocarditis, and we'll discuss those in the next section. But emboli from infective endocarditis, like bacteremia, often causes hematogenous spread of infection to the bone and joints. Embolization to the limbs can cause musculoskeletal complications, including septic arthritis and osteomyelitis. Osteomyelitis in particular can develop not only in the limbs, but also the vertebrae. In these patients, MRI of the spine will reveal abnormally enhancing lesions within the vertebral bodies. Now, while the embolic phenomena associated with infective endocarditis produce some of the most well-known symptoms, it's actually heart failure that's the most common cause of death from this disease. The vegetations, connective tissue degeneration, and associated perivalvular abscesses cause the valve to become acutely insufficient, leading to inefficient forward flow through the valve and volume overload proximal to the valve. Part 4. How do we diagnose infective endocarditis? Infective endocarditis is a tricky disease, since the presentation is often one of nonspecific infectious disease, like a viral infection. But delays in diagnosis can lead to severe complications, so it's important to catch it as early as possible. The diagnosis should be suspected in patients with persistent fever, chills, and malaise, with risk factors for infective endocarditis like a prosthetic valve, a known valve abnormality, severe dental disease or a recent dental procedure, and of course, IV drug abuse. Oftentimes, especially in subacute endocarditis, an extended workup for infectious disease is warranted when the patient has prolonged evidence of infection, or sepsis, and all the usual suspects like pneumonia and UTIs have been ruled out. On physical exam, the most common physical finding, like I mentioned, is a new heart murmur. If you're an ER doctor like me, you have no idea whether a murmur is new or old unless your patient knows about it, and they usually don't. But there are a cluster of much more noticeable and specific findings of embolization to the extremities that provide important clues for the diagnosis, if you know to look for them. Petechiae are small red or purple spots on the skin that do not blanch when you press on them, and are present in about 20-40% to 40 of patients with endocarditis. They occur due to bleeding from the capillaries after small emboli lodge in some of the small blood vessels of the skin. The classic defining signs of infectious endocarditis are much less common but highly specific signs of septic embolization to the distal extremities. If endocarditis is on the differential diagnosis, make sure to examine the hands and feet carefully for Osler nodes, Janeway lesions, and splinter hemorrhages. Osler nodes are painful and raised, whereas Janeway lesions are painless and usually not. 
Think Owsler, as in, ow, stop poking me in the Owsler node. <laughs> Finally, a splinter hemorrhage is a thin nail bed hemorrhage, like someone just shoved a splinter under your fingernail. Oddly enough, those are not painful. Finally, Roth spots are small retinal hemorrhages with a white center that occur in much the same way septic emboli to the brain do. This is more of a finding to remember so you look smart on rounds. Not only is it harder for the average non-ophthalmologist to actually recognize a Roth spot, it turns out that it's not even that specific a finding for infective endocarditis. Additionally, remember that a patient may present primarily with signs of serious illness due to the septic emboli, and that part of the diagnostic workup involves recognizing that the disease they're presenting with is actually a manifestation of infective endocarditis. For example, a patient may present primarily with respiratory failure, productive cough, and pleuritic chest pain due to pulmonary septic emboli. A patient with septic emboli to the brain may present with acute onset of focal neurologic deficits, as well as the headache, encephalopathy, and sepsis, more characteristic of a serious CNS infection like encephalitis or meningitis. But in the case of both pulmonary and cerebral septic emboli, diagnostic imaging can often provide the clue that leads you to suspect that the infection actually originates on a valve. If your CT of the chest or MRI of the brain shows a pattern of tiny, multiple scattered lesions, especially with the characteristic abscess features, now that's highly suspicious for infective endocarditis. A patient may present primarily with the swollen, painful joints of septic arthritis or the deep bone pain of osteomyelitis. Often, these orthopedic infections are caused by overlying trauma, but when there's no evidence of that, you should consider the possibility of a hematogenous spread of infection. With regard to diagnostic tests, your usual lab tests in the workup of sepsis, namely CBC, metabolic panel, lactic acid, procalcitonin, etc., these can provide diagnostic clues that a bacterial infection exists and assess the extent of its severity. The ESR specifically, or erythrocyte sedimentation rate, can be a particularly useful diagnostic clue, as endocarditis for some reason causes extremely high elevations of the ESR not seen in most other infectious diseases, besides bacteremia and osteomyelitis. But the two key diagnostic tests for infective endocarditis include blood cultures and the echocardiogram. Blood cultures not only establish the diagnosis of bacteremia, they can identify the specific organism present, as well as its antibiotic susceptibilities. Bacteremia is how the organisms get to the valve, and once they've made vegetations in the endocardium, they continue to seed the blood with bacteria and infected emboli. But the concentrations of bacteria in the blood aren't always as high as in clinically significant bacteremia. To achieve an acceptable 95% sensitivity for the blood culture, you need to order three separate blood cultures, each from a different blood draw. The usual two cultures ordered as a part of most sepsis protocols just won't cut it. Most bacteria, especially the virulent Staph aureus, will grow within the first 48 hours. Unfortunately, the Hasek bacteria are notoriously finicky to grow in culture, like trying to get pandas to breed in the zoo. These organisms may take five days to grow, if they grow at all. That's why if blood cultures are negative in a patient with a strong clinical suspicion, you still can't completely rule out the possibility of endocarditis. If necessary, serologic tests can be done to detect unusual organisms, like Coxiella, Chlamydia, or Bartonella. 
Echocardiography is the other modality that's central to the diagnosis of endocarditis. By visualizing the characteristic vegetations and abscesses, as well as evaluating the degree of valve insufficiency that can lead to lethal heart failure. Transthoracic echocardiography, the standard echo performed with the probe over the chest, will detect a little over half of all cases, which is not excellent. But by placing the ultrasound probe on an endoscope, inserting it down the esophagus, and pointing it towards the heart lying immediately anterior, you can actually improve the visualization tremendously. This technique, known as transesophageal echocardiography, has a sensitivity of about 90%, although it's considerably more invasive and needs to be performed by a cardiologist under sedation. But transesophageal echo should be performed in strongly suspected cases of endocarditis if the transthoracic echo is negative or of poor diagnostic quality. So to review, what are the two key diagnostic studies to obtain in cases of suspected endocarditis? Blood cultures and echocardiography should be obtained if infective endocarditis is suspected. For optimal sensitivity, you need three blood cultures and a transesophageal echo. Part 5. How do we prevent and treat infective endocarditis? Because infective endocarditis is strongly associated with certain at-risk patient populations, some patients at particularly high risk benefit from prophylactic antibiotic therapy to make treatment of a potentially serious illness unnecessary. This applies most often to patient populations with histories of valve abnormalities or certain cardiac surgeries like prosthetic valves before they undergo procedures known to cause transient bacteremia. These include dental procedures, GI or bronchoscopic procedures, and placement of cardiac hardware. Treatment of infective endocarditis begins with antibiotic therapy, which should start broad and severe illness, but ultimately be targeted to the causative organism that grows in the blood cultures. Given their limited sensitivity, blood cultures should be drawn before you start antibiotic treatment so as not to decrease bacterial loads below the point which they'll grow in culture. Antibiotic therapy, as with bacteremia, involves four to six weeks of intravenous antibiotics, though this depends to some extent on the causative organism. For that reason, patients are often discharged with a PIC or midline IV catheter that can remain indwelling and used at home without the need for hospital stays over a month. Surgical debridement and valve repair or replacement may be required under a number of circumstances. Infected prosthetic valves and cardiac hardware like pacemakers may need to be replaced if there's a high likelihood that they're the nidus of infection. Large vegetations, abscesses, or progressively dysfunctional valves causing heart failure often require surgical intervention as well. Finally, if the disease progresses despite antibiotic therapy, especially if the organism implicated is difficult to treat, surgery may be indicated to treat refractory infections. After the treatment of endocarditis is initiated, the cause of infection should be explored. Patients with infective endocarditis caused by organisms commonly found among the oral flora should receive a dental exam, for example. And those with strep gallolyticus should undergo a colonoscopy afterwards to evaluate for possible colorectal cancer. And that's a wrap! Let's see what you learned about the wacky, warty world of infective endocarditis and all those valvular lumps and bumps. First, can you name some of the most common symptoms of infective endocarditis?
The most important thing to remember is that infective endocarditis usually presents with nonspecific symptoms. Fever is the most common symptom, followed by things like weight loss, headache, and fatigue. The clinical course can be indolent in cases of subacute endocarditis, or more aggressive, like in cases of acute endocarditis. Second, can you name three patient populations commonly affected by infective endocarditis? IV drug users are predisposed to the highly virulent Staph aureus endocarditis, commonly on the tricuspid valve. Patients with native valve abnormalities or prior cardiac surgical history are at risk of developing endocarditis when they undergo procedures that can cause transient bacteremia, most often dental procedures. Third, can you describe the two main complications of infective endocarditis? The two main complications are septic emboli from the valves and heart failure from valve insufficiency. Septic emboli cause some of the most characteristic features of the disease, like the skin lesions, intracranial infections, pneumonia, osteomyelitis, and septic arthritis. But heart failure from valve insufficiency is the most common cause of mortality in infective endocarditis, and is most common in acute endocarditis. Finally, what are the mainstays of therapy for infective endocarditis? Antibiotic therapy targeted towards the causative organism is the mainstay of therapy, and weeks of IV antibiotics are frequently required. Refractory cases, cases that cause progressive heart failure, and those involving implanted cardiac hardware will frequently require surgical intervention to debride infected tissue and either replace or repair the valve. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the intro. A 31-year-old male with physical signs of intravenous methamphetamine abuse presents to the emergency department with fever, hypoxia with scattered crackles on auscultation, and a painful skin lesion on the right palm. What diagnosis do you suspect, and what tests will help confirm your suspicions? The patient is likely septic, so you order labs, blood cultures, and the usual empiric antibiotic coverage and IV fluids. The patient's respiratory failure and crackles on exam suggest pneumonia as the possible infectious source, and the x-ray does seem to support this. But remembering the patient's history of IV drug use, you think back to the painful skin lesion. To be completely honest, the last time you even thought of an Osler node was while studying for board exams but you think you might have just seen your first one in person. So you ask your nurse to order a third set of blood cultures, then change the antibiotic coverage to something more suitable for infective endocarditis. And despite the sepsis guidelines advising aggressive fluid resuscitation, you caution your nurse to run the fluid slowly and watch for evidence of fluid overload. Because if it is endocarditis, his valves may not tolerate an abrupt increase in preload. A follow-up CT of the chest reveals that what initially appeared to be patchy multifocal pneumonia on x-ray is actually made up of small nodules, some of them with their own air fluid levels. Before you admit the patient, you consult the cardiologist and inform him of your strong suspicion for infective endocarditis. Sounds reasonable, he says. If the standard echo doesn't show anything, we'll put him on the schedule for a transesophageal echo in the morning.
And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full BRICS experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends.